Hi, this is Dave Lefebvre with the LDS Perspectives Podcast. I'm here today with Kent Brown. S. Kent Brown is an emeritus professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University and is the former director of the BYU Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies. He taught at BYU from 1971 to 2008. From 1988 to 92, he was a member of the board of editors for the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. He has worked on archaeological teams in Egypt, Israel, and Oman. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Welcome, Kent, to LDS Perspectives. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So one of the things that I'd like to talk about before we jump into the topic, which is about your writings with Luke, I'd really like to explore your involvement in some films and documentaries that I know you worked on. You worked on Prince of Egypt, for example. You were an advisor to that? Yes. That came by invitation. Out of the blue, I was contacted by somebody in Southern California, was invited to go down as representative of the church to see the sort of early version of the film and write comments about it from a Latter-day Saint point of view, which had happened with a number of different faiths. For some reason, I was invited, I suppose because on the committee there were some people who knew me, knew my interest, so I went, and it was one of the most unusual experiences of my life. You've also worked on some films. I know you did the Journeys of Faith film about the Book of Mormon, and you worked on the Messiah series. Mm -hmm. And I believe you were involved in the New Testament series that the church put together, the videos the church did. Is that correct? Yes. What would you like to say about those? The Journey of Faith films, too. I was invited by people then at an organization called FARMS, Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies, Then with the Messiah series, that was basically something that I crafted, put together. And then I was invited by a friend who's working on the Bible Videos Project to make a contact with somebody in Salt Lake City, which I did. And that led to an invitation to become the technical advisor, which meant I was responsible for archaeology, history, culture, and religion of the ancient Mediterranean during the era of the New Testament. How long did that last? Three seasons that I was involved with it. And it was it was a wonderful experience to watch the director and others create a scene and see how the actors poured themselves into their roles. They obviously had prepared some of them by fasting and prayer to get themselves ready to say and do what they would do on camera. Well, those are great things. I love those New Testament uh, videos. I've used them in a lot of my own teaching. Let's get to our main topic then and talk about the BYU New Testament Commentary Series. Tell me how that effort began and what your involvements are on the steering committee. More than 25 years ago, six of us faculty members sat together on one afternoon. We'd all been thinking of this sort of thing for a long time privately. I don't remember how we got together, but we sat there and talked about this possibility and what we might do to gain official approval from the university 
so they had a little muscle behind our invitations, and also to figure out ways to involve people of real skill who could deal with the text and do so in a meaningful way, and in addition to that, produce a commentary that would appeal to Latter-day Saints. As you know, we've been accused for a long, long time of being non-Christian. It seems to me that the appearance of these volumes, which have begun now, is a very clear statement to those who don't know or who doubt that we, in fact, do worship Christ and that he stands foursquare in our faith. So there's been three volumes published so far, Correct. correct? And you were the author of one of them, The Testimony of Luke. That's right. That's a pretty hefty tome. You've got it sitting here on the table next to us. It's 1,200 pages or more. Uh, How long did it take you to work on that volume? What was that effort like? Well, truth be told, it took me about 20 years. But it began as notes for class. Each semester that I taught the life of Christ, I would teach two of the Gospels, and I came to choose Luke and John. John's very different from the others. So I began to make notes on Luke as well as on John, and that carried me into a continuing interest so that when we decided to go forward with the commentary, this group of six, I chose Luke because of its flavor. By that I mean how it talks about Jesus Christ, how Luke portrays him. For me, the flavor was sweet and deep, and so it was natural for me to do that. I didn't really make strong progress on this thing until I retired, and when I retired, then I could devote almost full-time to it. So you mentioned that Luke is sweet. I like that. That's a great description. What's unique about the, the Gospel of Luke as compared to the other three? Luke portrays a compassionate Christ. He shows up in the other Gospels with that same dress. But in, in Luke, I sense that it's even deeper and sweeter. For instance, in chapter 7, we run first into a story of the healing of a centurion servant, which Jesus does at distance never goes to the centurion's home. The next day, he's in Capernaum. The next day, he arrives at Nain, which is almost 30 miles to walk, and meets the funeral procession coming out of the town. And here's this little widow woman who's lost her son. Only her closest friends know of her tragedy. Nobody else cares about this woman. She's not an important person in society. She doesn't have a bunch of children who are making their mark in the world. She just lost her only child. And within a few years, she'll be totally forgotten. Now comes Jesus leading the band. He knows of her situation. And he walks that distance to alleviate her problem. In my mind's eye, I see him getting up about two o'clock in the morning in Capernaum, and saying to his disciples, let's go, we're going. And they're rubbing their eyes, and and out the door Jesus goes, and they scramble, grab their stuff and so on, to pull on the donkey that's carrying some of their gear, and 
try to keep up with him. And it's his initiative which brings relief to this woman. And I see this as characteristic of him throughout this text. Oh, that's a wonderful description. I love how you picture that. Tell us about Luke. Who is he? What do we learn about him, the, the author? Usually people turn to the passage in the New Testament where Paul calls Luke the physician, beloved physician. But in terms of Luke's text, the jury is out. Let me give you, for instance, in the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, after attending the synagogue, Jesus and the others come to Peter's home. Here's his mother-in-law, sick with a fever. Luke says that he looks upon her and heals her. Mark says that he took her hand. Now, a physician can tell a lot about someone by taking a hand. Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it clammy? Is it dry? Is there strength in the hand or is it weak? All that sort of thing. And if there are two ifs here, if Luke was following Mark, and if he were a physician, you have to fill both of those, then you would expect him to repeat what Mark said about taking this woman's hand. So we're not exactly sure what the close connection is. Though the way Luke writes the story of the woman who's been afflicted with an issue of blood for 12 years shows a certain sensitivity that Mark and Matthew do not possess in repeating the same story. What I do see are a bundle of stories, parables and others, in Luke's gospel that have to do with money and property. These are stories that none of the other gospels possess and I see Luke, in effect, bearing his testimony that at one point, money and property were important to him, but after his conversion to Christ, that has flipped, and his interest in goods drops, and his interest in spiritual matters rises dramatically. And so he's happy to present to us these stories, these instances of money. Uh, for instance, the parable of Abraham and the beggar. You might remember this, this story out of chapter 16, that at the base of that sits the poor beggar and the rich man. So the story flows out of that. So that kind of leads me to the, this notion that you wrote in the introduction about you wanted to provide a family and a home-centric view of Jesus' teachings. And some of these examples you gave kind of speak to that. What does it mean to have that type of a perspective on Jesus' life, and how did that impact your work on Luke? As you know, Dave, each author brings a certain set of prejudices or perspectives to a work. There's no way to scrub it out, especially in this kind of enterprise. We can talk about writing in such a way that we were objective but objectivity in religious commentary is impossible. So, knowing that, I decided to let mine show in some way. And as a Latter-day Saint, family and family connections are of paramount importance. And Luke's gospel, it turns out, exhibits some of that, and nobody else picks up on that except as an afterthought to bring something in. For me, 
I start with Luke chapter 1, and the first persons I run into are Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're a married couple. So we're inside of a family as this story opens. Plus, this family is about to grow larger and be healed of the lack of children with the coming of their son, John. So I think to myself, I'm being smacked in the face by a story that has to do with families. Why should I avoid talking about them as a couple and as a family augmented joyously with the coming of this little tiny baby? Yeah, and the family stories continue on. You know, you've talked about already the widow Nain, Mary and Joseph, and so many others. That's a, it's a wonderful perspective. One of the things that's intriguing to me in this commentary series is that you're providing a fresh translation or a rendition, mm-hmm. as it's called in the series, of the Greek text into English. And you present that side by side with the King James text, which is really helpful and valuable. What do you see as the benefits of including such a new translation in these works? We have specifically called these new translations a rendition. We do not see ourselves as competitors with the King James translators and the text that they produced. Instead, we're offering to people a little different sense of how the text reads, perhaps in some cases expanding our understanding of how the text is to be understood. I have found in my life that very often I'm enriched when I run into a tough passage in the King James text. If I pick up another translation, I say, oh, that's another way to understand what I just read. And there are some people who are perhaps more purists than I who want to try to figure out what the King James text is saying. But it seems to me that looking at another translation of the same passage very often adds to our understanding of how we can grasp what the author intended me to understand. Now, I think looking at alternate translations is a great resource, and I I use it all the time in my study. The King James is a marvelous poetic work, but a lot of the words are archaic and difficult to understand for people, and so it's great to have another perspective. And the renditions are very helpful, as I've seen them in the different volumes. We wanted to add a layer of modernity to this thing so that it's in contemporary English. Yeah, which is super helpful for the reader of the New Testament now. So tell me about what role modern scripture, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl Great Price, played in your um, preparing your commentary. You know, as I was writing this, I programmed my reading, my private reading, to go through the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants multiple times. So that as I was working through the text of Luke, I would come on a passage, say, in the Doctrine and Covenants, which was very relevant. So either I quoted it, or I certainly cited it as a text to be looked at by a reader. And I discovered things that, for instance, had been taken over, lock, stock, and barrel from Luke, The parable of the widow and the unjust judge is quoted in extenso in the Doctrine and Covenants. The rule that one repays fourfold comes right out of the story of the chief tax collector in Jericho, Zacchaeus. 
So these are little pieces that are in the Doctrine and Covenants that are relevant to understanding Luke and show the influence that that gospel text still possesses and possessed. The one, of course, that's cited most in the Doctrine and Covenants is the Gospel of John, but the other gospels, including Luke, also stand inside the text. The JST became an important component because their readings in the Joseph Smith translation, which are very compelling in one passage or another. So I was happy to quote sometimes fairly long passages out of the Joseph Smith translation. My sense is that the Joseph Smith translation does not offer us the original text of Luke. Instead, it's a doctrinal, historical, cultural commentary on Luke's gospel in much of it. I, I go back to section 35 when the Lord is called Sidney Rigdon to be Joseph Smith's scribe in this effort. And the Lord says he's going to give to them the scriptures as they are in mine own bosom. So we now have in the JST the scripture as the Lord has them in his bosom. So there's high value to this. All right. Well, Kent, so what are some of the things in this commentary that that you're most pleased with? What parts stand out for you and but what do you really like about the, the work that you've done with this Gospel of Luke? I think I've been able to figure some things out that others have not who have worked with this text. For instance, in chapter 11, we're coming back to family now, there's a series of sayings of Jesus that have to do with home or house. It starts off with someone saying, well, Jesus is casting out devils by the prince of devils, Beelzebub. And Jesus has some things to say about that. He talks about if he's doing that sort of thing, then Satan's kingdom is divided like a house, leaning against a house, and once one falls, the other one collapses. Or it's like a strong man in his palace who is at peace until a stronger comes and displaces him. But the palace is more than a palace. The term there means courtyard and refers to the home that's built around a courtyard. Then the third saying has to do with the little devil that's at home in somebody's soul. Their body is cast out, wanders around looking for a place to live, comes back, finds the place swept and furniture rearranged and so on, but nobody's home. So he gets his seven nasty friends. They come and take over the person's soul again. Each one of these stories has to do with house or home. So we're talking about family matters. And I see this as Jesus' warning, especially to parents, that evil always lurks and that they need to be paying attention in the story of the strong man and stronger man, the strong man is obviously Satan, and the stronger is Jesus, who displaces him. But among the goods that the strong man holds are souls. I discovered this once reading somebody's little commentary in this passage, that what the devil holds is not only territory and so on, but he holds onto the souls of people, including those that have gone into the next life. 
So I thought that was very insightful. And here Jesus is dealing with eternal things, both in this life and the next. And Satan's grip over the souls of people and this series of little stories about the home are in effect a warning. A second example has to do with temptations. Jesus is out there in the wilderness. The end of 40 days, the devil comes, uh, runs him through these temptations. What's interesting is that Jesus does not banter with the devil. He doesn't get into an argument or something. No great scholarly debate. That's right. right. He simply quotes a scripture to set the thing, to bring the issue to an end. But the issues are power and authority. Who possesses them? All this is given unto me, says the devil. And he gives it to whomever he desires or intends to give it. It's weeks later when Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth where he shows who has the authority by quoting Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He hath anointed me. So there's the statement about authority spoken in a synagogue. A week later, he's been tossed from that one. He's in the Capernaum synagogue. And there is a man who is afflicted by an unclean spirit, which Jesus tosses. He exorcises the evil spirit from this man. It's to the credit of the people in the synagogue that they allowed this man in. That's right, because in his condition, he normally would have been. That's right. He would have been excluded. But the people in Capernaum are welcoming to him, knowing that that's where he needs to be on the Sabbath day. So in this scene, Jesus shows his power. Where? In a synagogue. So in two places of worship, Jesus has now answered the devil's challenge. Who possesses real authority? Who possesses real power? And he does so in a place of worship, scripture reading, devotion, fellowship, all of these things which come together in a place of worship. He now says, in effect, to his audience, who consists of ourselves who are reading this account, He says, spiritual power, spiritual authority are accessed in places of worship. He's just on the cusp of organizing his own church and calling disciples and so on who will be his leaders. And I think the answer is blinding and clear that you find God not riding your horse up in the forest or something like that on Sunday, but you find him in a place of worship, namely of church building. Oh, that's great insight. I love how you tied those two together. Well, we can't discuss all the marvelous insights that this book has to offer in just one podcast. People are just going to have to read it, and I hope they all will. But let's maybe we can sing out a couple of them. In your career, I have noticed, but but also especially in this commentary, you have a powerful focus on women in Jesus' commentary, and you've talked about this already a little bit. Uh, In Elizabeth, Mary, Anna, Martha, and Mary, so many others. Let me quote just maybe one section from chapter 21 on the widow at the temple that gives two mites. You wrote, because Jesus notices her, he is able to draw his disciples into a lesson of ultimate sacrifice, ultimate devotion, ultimate worship, ultimate discipleship. The poor widow's gift reaches into the fabric of her livelihood, into her empty cupboards, her spent storage jars, her bare clothes closet, her bed made lonely by the death of her husband. Her gift diminishes her ability to provide for herself even in the most basic ways. 
She of her penury hath cast in all the living that she had. She's a true disciple, giving all. That's the end of the quote. How did Jesus think about women, and especially women on the margins of society like this one? I see him as drawing disciples' attention to such persons. And in cases, especially women, we think of the crippled woman in the synagogue in Luke 13, who's been in this condition for all this time, and Jesus releases her to the protests of the head of the synagogue. And I suppose Jesus really used restraint in not lashing out harder and with more vigor than he did. But he calls her a daughter of Abraham. She has as much access to the blessings of Abraham as anyone else in that room that day. And he underscores that in his response to the synagogue leader. You know, the passage you just read, every once in a while, it just sort of hit a crease. And somehow the language just comes out, as you suggested, almost poetically. May I try another passage? Absolutely. This is something I put at the end of chapter 2 of what I'm working on currently in Ephesians. There's an almost identical passage in my commentary as I deal with the term the Father in chapter 2, verse 18 of Ephesians. This is what I write at the very end of my commentary on chapter 2. As we wrote in the note on 2.18, the Father is the guiding force behind both creation and redemption. For he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He controls all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. He sent Christ to offer redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. He is the one for whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. He is above all and through all and in you all. Hallelujah. I love that. It's an instance in which almost the only thing that will do after you read all of this that has to do with a father sitting inside that letter, the only thing to do is sing. Yeah, rejoice and praise. That's marvelous. Oh, thank you. Uh, let me ask another question about Gethsemane. Uh, Latter-day Saint understanding of the events in the Garden of Gethsemane are very unique in the Christian world, as you know. And Luke's account is perhaps the most unique of the four Gospels in this aspect. What makes it unique and what do scholars kind of negate sometimes? And how does modern scripture influence our discussion of what happened in that garden? Luke is the only one who talks about Jesus' suffering. And he talks about it in terms of bleeding from every pore, which must mean that he bleeds into his clothes. And rarely do we see art portraying Jesus in stained clothing, or even in red clothing, which has been made so by blood. The problem for this is that in Luke 22, verses 43 and 44, the verses that talk about the coming of the angel to give him comfort, and the verse that talks about his bleeding are not in the earliest manuscripts. They do not appear, even though there are early Christian writers who know about this story, because they talk about Jesus bleeding. 
That includes Tatian, a late 2nd century father, Justin Martyr, who is a middle 2nd century Christian author. They all know about this account. Plus, on that basis, I think it's possible to make a case that something like what we have in verses 43 and 44 was in the text, that it was known, and that there's a very high likelihood that it was excised. We for sure know that this bleeding and suffering occurred, first in its prophetic form in Mosiah chapter 3. For behold, blood cometh from every pore. That's what we read. It's part of a poetic piece, which are built on two forebeholds. For behold, the time cometh, and is not far distant, that with power. So there's the opening of the poem, midway through it, for behold, blood cometh from every pore, which is the emphatic point of this poetic passage. So prophetically, we see Jesus is to bleed. Then in section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we have Jesus, the risen Christ now, talking about his experience and what it was like to pass through that. So we know that Jesus indeed suffered in Gethsemane, as Luke has written, and it's basically other scripture which are confirmatory of that. Yeah, it's wonderful how the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants speak to that event together. Well, so how has your work on the Gospel of Luke impacted your personal discipleship of Jesus Christ? I was mentored by working with this text. There were things that I came to understand, not only about the stories of Jesus, but about he himself, through the eyes of this faithful man, who was a Gentile, a second-generation Christian, who had come to faith and had decided to write about his master. And his presentation of his master was not only touching, but moved me at times in ways that are hard to describe. It's almost like sitting in the chapel of Catherine, a Roman Catholic building next to the traditional birthplace of Jesus in Bethlehem, and listening to a choir and orchestra from Washington, D.C., who are being recorded for release on TV in the United States in a few weeks. This is early in December. Listen to the first strains of the music, the short overture, and thinking, I sit within at least 400 yards of where all this took place, where Jesus was born. And that sort of feeling that I experienced on that occasion in Bethlehem, listening to a performance of the Messiah in this packed chapel, that feeling was replicated at times as I worked on Luke's gospel. And once again, only song will do. It's the only way you can express your feelings. That's one of the things I've noticed in your career. You've put so many scriptures in that context where you paint the picture of what's really happening. Thank you, Kent. Really appreciate your time today. It was wonderful to chat with you. Thank you for the invitation. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. 
LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.